welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing quite well, Michael. How about you? I'm doing quite well as well. I've been talking a little bit recently uh, about switching jobs. There was a there was a long period of time where I knew that I was leaving my old job, but I hadn't got a, an official start date yet, and uh, that caused me a little bit of stress at work. Uh, but it is now official. I have been on the new job for a couple weeks, and it is going splendidly. Really, could not be happier unless they paid me more money. Like that's the <laughs> the only complaint is that I'm not making a ton more money than I am. But other than that, going really really well. Uh, it has allowed me to have a lot more time with the family, which is great. It also gives me a little bit more freedom to do some other things on the weekend because I say, hey, I've already spent four hours with the kids this week. I can have Saturday not free, right? We might have to edit that one out of the show in case the wife listens. <laughs> She'll be on to oh, your no. evil scheme. No, no, she doesn't listen at all. Oh, good. Then, yeah, that's yeah. an awesome plan. Rack, yeah, rack things, up those kid hours during the week. Yeah, but things for me have been going really well. How about you? Any any big news or anything going on? Uh, nothing big or new on my home front. Uh, just normal day-to-day work, home, sleep, work, squeezing the, squeeze the hobby when I can, which is unfortunately the motto of all grown-up gamers. Well, before we get too far into this, let's take a moment and um, give the title of this. We're, we're trying to sort of a new intro process. As you may have noticed, we're no longer doing cold intros. Uh, so we haven't quite got our process down. But this is going to be Table Topics, episode number 77, Magic 101. And in this episode, we are going to touch on a couple older topics. We're going to revisit them. But the meat of the episode is going to be about spellcasting in D&D 5th edition. I constantly see questions on Reddit and Twitter and some other places like the Facebook groups that I'm in that people are still struggling with how spell slots work, primarily with the wizard class. But really, the spell slots kind of work the same for all of the classes, at least the vast majority. So we're going to take a few minutes and kind of explain that in our own ways. I, I will have a fluffy method. I'm sure Caleb will have a crunchy one and hopefully offer some insight and guidance in how that works. Uh, but before we get into that, I keep saying that at some point we're going to go back so far that we're in front of ourselves again. Uh, we're going to take a step back as we always do and explain that the advice that we share on these tabletop episodes, uh, we try to share the experience that we've gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But Caleb and I understand that the advice we give or the opinions we share are not going to be applicable at every table, every situation, every time. However, there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that piece of advice, sir? If you're having fun, you are doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what edition you're playing, or what game system, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun at the table, then you're playing the game correctly. And that is the motto of our show and our website, and that is the rules that we try to live by. So we're going to kind of get into the show here. Uh, we're going to take a, a moment to talk about a catacon. Um, you get used to it. It's going to happen a lot. Not a lot of new information about a catacon. Things are still progressing quite nicely. We've got some uh, some verbal commitments from quite a few people. 
uh, within our gaming circles. And I, I'm pretty comfortable at this point that we're going to get the minimum that we need so that we can have the event. Uh, the Kickstarter is still scheduled to go live in September, probably first week end of it, no later than the middle of September, because we have to have time once it's closed to get the funds processed, because that can even take a couple weeks from what I understand, and then still get everything paid off. Uh, we are looking at providing t-shirts as part of a swag bag. We also want to do dice, maybe poker chips, maybe button stickers. So all that's the stuff that we're working on. Uh, but I just want to throw it out again to you, our loyal fans and listeners. If you are planning on coming, or even if you just think you might come, please let us know. Uh, one method or another. Send us an email, tweet at us, Facebook us, Google+. Uh, jump on our forums, which we now have in a Catacon forum set up. And give us an idea if you're coming. That will that will help us out greatly. And then even more important is if you are willing to run something for us, please make sure you let me know that as well. This year, because we're not anticipating that big of a turnout, we're going to do a lot of things very manually. I'm pretty much going to put together an Excel spreadsheet with all the different games that people are willing to run with a description very similar to what you would see at Gen Con or Origins. And then we, we, at some point in time, we will make that list public and allow people to sign up for it. So the earlier I can get on that, the better things will be. Uh, any news from you, Caleb, on the Akatacon front? From my end, I have been doing a little bit of research on our various options for swag and fun little things to play with. As you said, Michael, I think the easiest thing to do is going to be the standards, uh, T-shirts, buttons, dice, tokens, things like that. Um, so I'm pricing that stuff out, getting some quotes for different things. Uh, if anyone out there has an idea for something cool or unique, please uh, shoot us an email or uh, get in touch with us on the various social media we use. If you are a creator of unique items like dice bags or some sort of uh, gaming accessory like dice towers or something, and you want to have your products featured uh, at a catacon, let us know. Maybe we can include your stuff as a prize for our raffle. Maybe we it can be included as a deluxe ticket purchase when we launch the Kickstarter. We've got lots of crazy ideas, and we are always welcoming more craziness. So get a hold of us and let us know if uh, if you'd like to suggest something. Yeah, awesome, hundred percent agree. We, you know the reason we're doing this is because of the, the the community that's building up around us and how much fun we have engaging with you guys. So anything we can do to pull you in and make you more a part of, of the show and the process, and especially a catacon, we are all for that. Uh, one quick thing I do also want to mention is I noticed that uh, Atomic Robo had been uh, nominated for one of the Origin Awards. And I was just, it was on Twitter and Fred Hicks and uh, Mike Olson were kind of tweeting back and forth that Mike will now have to go to Origins in case they win. And I replied back, I was like, I will make Atomic Robo as awesome sauce, plaque award, whatever you want to call it. If you want to come to a catacon, you know, just joking. And he's, apparently his wife is from my area and he said he was planning on a trip here in the fall. He left it at that. Uh, but there is at least a shred of possibility that Mike Olson, uh, the lead game, uh, lead, I guess, designer of Atomic Robo, who we had an opportunity to interview at a point in the past, might come to a catacomb. So that's our first in for a possible special guest. 
and and let's let's put a clause of extreme allegedness on that <laughs> statement. We absolutely have not locked in any sort of communication contract or agreement with any of these incredibly famous and talented people. Allegedly. Allegedly. It's all alleged. That now makes it sound like he's only allegedly talented. I didn't mean it that way, Mike. Love you, guy. I think your communication with him is alleged. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have the Twitter. I actually saved it, uh, and then I have it a tattooed on my left butt cheek. Of course you did. Of course. Well, it couldn't go on the right because there's already one there, but we, we won't get into that. So last little thing before we move on and get into the actual show. Unless there's been technical difficulties, our one-shot episodes that Caleb and I got to participate in should have already started airing. I believe this Monday, which will be April 20th, uh, is the first of the episodes. Uh, we are actually recording this prior to that Monday, so I can't guarantee it. But I expect that James, uh, the uh, ultimate professional that he is, will have it out on time. So please uh, take a listen. I cannot wait to listen to these episodes. I, we actually have an episode coming out Monday as well. I think I might be more excited for that one than I am for our own. Uh, so please take a listen. Hopefully you guys will enjoy as much as we uh, enjoyed playing that game. Uh, but I think that's about it. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on in. And we wanted to kind of touch back on a topic we talked about recently, and that was metagaming. Uh, so, Caleb, what happened that made us want to go back and at least touch on this a little bit today? Uh, well, we got a pretty long, very detailed email in a response to our uh, metagaming conversation that brought up a very good point about when, uh, or a situation, I should say, when metagaming is required. And that would be? The situation in which metagaming is required <clears throat> is when it comes to healing and using healing magics. And this is something that we, we did totally sort of just miss in our original conversation about metagaming. And uh, the, the email came in from one of our most loyal fans, a guy, he's been around almost since the beginning. He is one of our patrons as well, James, uh, one of our uh, Twitter followers as well. So you've probably seen him interacting with us if you're on Twitter with us. and um, He's contacted us before about other episodes. He he always has a lot of valuable insights, so I'd really appreciate his comments. And, you know, I can't find a lot of fault with what he said right now. And I want to. I want to be able to say you cannot metagame healing. And I'm sure you can, but I'm not sure that it's worth it. Uh, because to his point, let's say that you're a paladin, 5th edition, you're 5th level. So I think that means you have... 25. 25 is 5 per level. You have 25 points of healing that you can give back through your Lay on Hands power. So unless you just ask another player how many hit points is your character down, how would you facilitate that? You could say that it's sort of like an all or nothing, and you just say, I'll lay my hands on you, and I either get to your full, not knowing what that number is yet, or I run out. You know, it's like an all or nothing for the, for the paladin. I'm going to lay on hands. If you're missing 24, I don't know that number. You tell me when to stop, and then you tell me what number it is. There's still an element of metagaming there. You're just removing it from the paladin and putting it on the other player or the other the other character. The DM could sort of arbitrate that. But again, that's where I get I kind of get into the point where I don't know. The point you don't want to metagame, because I actually think metagaming is okay, but it has its you know parts where I try to avoid it, is you don't want to pull yourself out of the story. 
if the DMs happen to go through this very convoluted process to keep you from metagaming, you're still having the same problem. You're still not in the story. You're just not the one facilitating it. So did you have any thoughts on either ways around that or just, you know, are you, is that just, he's right. You, you do have to metagame if you're a healer because of the way hit points are an abstraction anyways. Well, here's the thing. The, what James sent us is actually a small point of a much larger point in that anytime you are doing anything at the D&D table and you are talking about rolling the dice or what number is assigned to what arbitrary description, that's metagaming. When I say my fireball does 6d6 damage and I rolled a 25, I'm not describing, I'm not role-playing that damage. I'm describing my damage. When I say I roll my attack with my longsword and I get 18 to hit, I'm metagaming because I'm talking about the game instead of the role-playing. And I think in our original discussion, we were talking about metagaming as in using player knowledge versus character knowledge. But there's another level of that discussion talking about the game world versus the reality of five grown-ups sitting around a table playing pretend. In that sense, we're always metagaming. And there's absolutely no problem with that because we know we're sitting around a table playing pretend. We know we're not really swinging swords and casting magic spells. And we know we have to use the rules of the game, the dice, the arbitrary numbers, hit points, armor class, saves, to support our storytelling. If you are a person and you have a group that is 100% dedicated to role-playing, you're going to be talking about magic and attacks and healing in purely descriptive terms. You're not going to be talking about numbers. So in that case, you're not metagaming because you're not, you're not making use of any arbitrary monitoring device that the numbers and the stats give you. And that's a different game. That's not necessarily Dungeons and Dragons in the way that we're talking about it and playing with it. Um, Michael, there is a game that you and I have discussed that you will probably be running at some point in the future where you are going to ask your players to work uh, more in role-playing narrative storytelling descriptions. And when it comes to uh, physically making an attack or using a skill, you're going to shift that away from the player and more to your side of the GM screen. Now that is an example where there is going to be less metagaming and more straight role-playing. Yeah, that's a, a game that I'm working on. My next home game, which the plan is to make that a podcast, uh, I'm going to be doing some somewhat crazy experimentation. I, I don't know if I, what I want to do is going to work. And I, I shared this with Caleb, and I think he's on the same sort of line as me, is that if it works, it could be very cool, but it's going to put a lot more pressure on myself to manage some of those numbers, and I'm not sure that the payoff will be worth it. We'll find out together one way or the other. Uh, but I definitely, um, I, I, that kind of goes back to my point, is that it might be able to be done, but is it going to be worth it? Exactly. And because I am the crunch part of this team, I feel that's my responsibility to say, if we take away or try to role play away or negate some of those numerical aspects of a character and class abilities, we've now lost the balance of the game. 
specifically with the paladin, his class ability says he has a chunk of healing and he can dole it out as he wishes during the day on himself, as an ally, even on an enemy or uh, someone they're interrogating, an NPC. The, the point of that power is it's not just a one-time use spell. He can say, I need to use a small portion of healing now and a larger portion of healing later. If we take away that, that player's ability to use that class ability to its full extent, we've now ruined the balance and some of the appeal of playing a paladin. Yes, it would be really cool to be able to say, uh, I cast a healing spell and it glows and, and the the person I'm targeting returns to full health. Or it'd be really cool to have an element of the game be the person healing doesn't know how sick the other person is or how damaged they are or how much healing they need or how much healing their spell actually does. But at that point, we're not playing Dungeons & Dragons anymore. Dungeons & Dragons is a game, and the rules of that game, there's lots of numbers. And those numbers are about how many hit points you have and how much damage you do and how much healing you do. That's part of the game. And James's point is that in when we're talking specifically about the numbers that run these characters we're playing pretend with, you need to acknowledge those numbers at the table. And sure, that is a, a level of metagaming, and I think that's a necessary level. So I, for once, agree with James that this is a... Uh, a part of the game and it should be there. Well, as I kind of started, I I can't really come up with a good argument against it. So I would say in this case it is James 1, RPG Academy also 1 cuz I'm going to cheat and say we're at least tied. But James, thank you very much for the email. We do always appreciate your support as well as your comments. I do find them very thoughtful and uh very usually accurate to what we're talking about. So please keep it up. Uh also if you want to join us on the forums, you can start interacting there uh, with us and maybe a little quicker return on some of your comments and uh, hopefully get some interaction going with some of our other listeners. We, we are getting new forum participants just about every day. So thank you guys very much for that. Uh, we have one other sort of small topic that we want to touch on before we move on to our main topic, and that's luck. Our One of our most recent episodes, actually, I think it is our most recent episode, was about luck. And we had two uh, very... Sh- kind of quick responses. Uh, One, we missed Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is a game I've played a couple times, and it has luck as one of the main stats of your character, and and it comes into play quite often. Uh, I'm actually really happy, though, that we left that game out, only because one of the people who responded back to me, we started talking, and now they're going to run a game for us as the trial. So we're getting a Dungeon Crawl Classics game on the podcast because of that omission, so I'll take credit that I did it on purpose. I mean, that's the DM's job, right? To, to make it look like we planned out all these little things. And then we got a comment from RPG Gamer Dad that um, there are games that give luck points. And he, he mentioned the name of the game, and I'm struggling right now to, to, to pull it. I'm sure it's in the show notes, and I'll feel like an idiot later. But basically, you get luck points that you can spend sort of like fate points or action points from like 3.5 Eberron that allow you to adjust the fate of your character. So that is another way that luck could be used as an expendable resource, which we kind of talked about that, but we were talking about it in the con- context of D&D 5th edition, adding it in. This is a different game system that has it built in. Uh, but I do like that as well, that if you're lucky, you just get more of them. You know, in fate, 
everyone pretty much starts with the same number unless you have more stunts that cause you to get less. Uh, in Savage Worlds, you get bennies, which you could also sort of say these are like luck, but everybody gets the same unless you have a fate uh, or an edge or a hindrance, which one of those edges is lucky. One of those hindrances is unlucky, so you can definitely think of bennies as luck. Yeah, fate, you could use those as expendable resources. If you think about it, when you are tagging an aspect to spend a fate point, you could easily just say that that is luck. You know, you were supposed to have missed, but you didn't. In the narrative of the game, because you tag an aspect, it's supposed to be related back to that aspect, which is more about the skill of your character. You know, because I'm a sniper, uh, you know, a common or commendated sniper, I shouldn't have missed that shot, so I get to roll again. But in the above board games, and you could think of it as luck. But it, regardless, I'm really glad that people are responding to the episodes and replying back. Uh, and I thank you guys both for, for uh, contacting us, and especially uh, for our soon-to-be The Trial of Dungeon Crawl Classics. I do really like that game. Have you ever played it before, Caleb? I have not. I'm looking forward to it. I've played it a couple times. Once was one of the best events I had played. Uh, the second time, not so much, but that had nothing to do with the game system. That was the environment, and I think I covered that in my last Gen Con recap. But... We will now move into the uh, main portion of the show, and that's going to be all about magic, specifically how spell slots work, cantrips, and rituals. Now, I, I've said many times before, I spend probably more time on Reddit than I should, and uh, I see probably two or three times a week, at least once weekly, and I think more than that, questions that come up over and over again about people not understanding how sp spell slots work. Uh, what does a prepared list mean? Can I cast this spell? Can I do that? What you know? Do do domains cost extra? Domain spells, I mean, are they free? Uh, how do rituals work? So we're going to kind of cover that. We're calling this Magic 101 because we're not going to cover everything regarding magic, but we're going to hit on those three things and we're going to leave it open for us to revisit. Um, so we'll start with cantrips because that seems to be a good place to start when we're talking about magic. So Caleb, how would you define describe to our audience, particularly if you're talking to someone who's new to D&D or specifically D&D for the tradition, what are cantrips and how do they work in the context of this rule set? Okay. Uh, in fifth edition, a cantrip is a spell with infinite casting. There is no daily limit or cap to how many times you can cast a cantrip that your character knows. Uh, if we want to use Terms from 4th edition D&D, a cantrip is an at-will ability or power. You can use it whenever you want. In 5th edition, there are uh, some attack cantrips, and there are some utility cantrips. Things that just provide a, a benefit or a boost to your, uh, to your character throughout the day. Um, by definition... Since they're essentially a zero-level spell, if we go to an older level, uh, an older version of D&D, cantrips are usually pretty weak. Uh, the most classic version of a cantrip in my mind is light. You cast it, something lights up. It's useful, but it's pretty limited. Uh, there are some cantrips that do a lot of different things. Uh, like a wizard gets prestidigitation. Uh, a cleric gets um, th thermaturgy, however it's pronounced, I always forget. Um, basically, it is a generic spell 
that lets you do any sort of minor effect that doesn't really have any impact on game mechanics or cause damage. You're a magic user, you can do magic things. Like lighting candles or extinguishing candles or um, in the first Lord of the Ring movie, how Gandalf shoots out the fireworks out the back of the cart to make the little kids happy. That would have been like a, a use of prestidigitation. Exactly. Now, if we go back to older versions of D&D, there were still cantrips and they were still similarly zero level, very low impact spells, but they had a limit. You knew so many and you could only cast so many per day. And they were also a lot more specific. So there would be three or four different spells that would dictate all of those generic wizard effects. Fireworks, uh, blowing out candles, lighting candles, whatever. There was actually a different spell for each of those in one way or another. And then when we got to 4th edition, that was when Wizards of the Coast gave us at-will powers and just said, Prestidigitation. If you're a wizard, you can do wizard things. Use your imagination. And that has carried over into 5th edition as well. Now the cool thing in my mind about cantrips in 5th edition is that they do increase in level as your character levels up. Yes, I think that is a great addition, that scaling. And that will come in later when we talk about spell slots as well. So a big fan of scaling cantrips. Exactly. It basically means that zero level free spell that you can cast all the time is still valuable at 20th level versus first level. I mean, let's say in an older edition, uh, you had acid splash as a cantrip. It did 1d3 acid damage. When you were at first level, that's pretty good. When you're at 20th level, who the hell cares? And you never cast a cantrip again. In 5th edition, while they're not going to do as much damage as another attack spell, or provide you as much protection, or stat boost, or saving boost as a, a more uh, appropriate level spell, cantrips will increase, they will scale up, so they'll still be valuable. And since they are an at-will infinite casting, there's something your character is meant to rely upon. Now, generally, in 5th edition, uh, magic users might have two or three cantrips throughout the entire course of their 20 levels of adventuring. Some classes get five or six, and depending on what feats you take or if you multi-class, you might get even more. In my mind, with a role-playing and a flavor element, these cantrips are kind of your go-to wheelhouse. They define your character. If you have the, whatever it's called, the fireball, mini little fireball cantrip, you're always going to be casting that because it's free, it's always a lot of damage, and it's something you've had since first level. If you instead have a guidance cantrip where you're, um, you know, adding a, uh, a numerical boost to a skill check, you're going to be doing that through your entire campaign or entire career as a character, and that's defining who you are. You're the helper. You're the party buff, as opposed to the guy running around slinging fireballs. So they also your choices in cantrips also help define your role playing choices. Oh, absolutely. And it you know you're gonna you're gonna pick those when you create your character. With fortunately, you have the ability within the rules to change those out a little bit. But as a as a DMGM, I also would allow 
a player to change those if they chose to. I'm not going to say like all the time, like every level they want to switch them out. But if, if they decided at first level they wanted to play their character a certain way, by third level, it just those options weren't coming up or they didn't feel that they were making that type of character choices over and over again, I would certainly let them, let them switch those out so that it fits the theme of their character. But the, the point I wanted to make there is that this is something that I had actually house ruled years ago in my games that I gave magic users a generic magic attack. It was just basically an at-will ranged attack. It was just magical energy, and it essentially did the same damage as a crossbow. And the only reason I did that was because that's what you did as a wizard in those older editions is you had two spells at first level. You were lucky if you could cast it twice. So every time you went into a combat, you'd cast your two spells, and then you would run around the rest of the time throwing darts, shooting a crossbow, trying to use a dagger, or just otherwise trying to stay out of the fight, which, and this is a can of worms we're going to, we're not going to open up completely. Part of the reason was because you had that, um, sort of, was it the quantum leveling issues with wizards? They started off super weak because they got super powerful and it was a way to kind of like balance that out. But most games never got to the point where that truly mattered anyways, at least not in my experience. So I wanted my wizards to feel like wizards every time. They always had the ability to do something that was magical, but it wasn't any more powerful than a crossbow. It just, it, you know, it was a, it was a fluff issue. Essentially, it was a crossbow attack without the crossbow. Couldn't made it magical. And I've had a few people, I mean, I've kind of paid attention on Reddit and other places where they say that that doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, it makes them too powerful. I disagree, obviously, because casters are my favorite class, but a, a warrior can swing a sword every turn. There, because of 5th edition, there's going to be certain class features where a particular swing of the sword can do more damage. It can have additional effects, uh, you know, like tripping, disarming, sundering, that kind of thing. That's essentially what, what is happening here. Every turn, the wizard can do something wizardly, or they can do something more powerful, but it costs a, a greater resource. So for me, I think cantrips are a great addition to the game. The biggest confusion that I see right now is that people don't understand that they are free to cast. They are at wills, as you covered, and that you only have a limited number. It's not like every morning you select new cantrips. You select those when you create your character, and then at certain defined points along your path of leveling, you can trade them out or add to them. But once you have them, you have them all as at will for the rest of your character's career. Yeah, definitely. The the cantrip for the caster is, in my mind, his core class ability, at least in 5th edition. Yes, wizards and clerics, they're always going to have their wheelhouse of being a certain type of spellcaster, but in 5th edition, at any rate, they really are focused around their cantrips. And it, in my mind, some of the cantrips are the most useful uh, spells in the game. They're free. They scale up and do a lot of damage if they're damage-dealing spells, and they're really utilitarian. They're very, very useful. Um, the the spell-casting all casters get throughout the course of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition tends to be on the more scaled-back side. There aren't as many crazy spell slots and random abilities that you can do when we look back uh, comparing it to an older game that had a higher power creep. So, in my mind, the wizard, when I compare it from 5th edition back to 3rd edition, in generally is a weaker wizard. He can't do as much 
cool wizardy things. But the fact that we add cantrips to that mix that are infinite and scale up as the character levels up balances that out. Uh, it, it's not going to win over the class or the spellcasting or the game in my mind, but it certainly makes it more fun. If I'm playing a wizard, I can always do something that a wizard would do. And I do want to, one other thing that I see confusion on, and I think I know the answer, but feel free to correct me, my Crunchmaster, sir. Uh, in 5th edition, as far as multi-classing goes, all of your spells are based upon character level, not class level. So if I was a first level wizard and a 19th level fighter, 20th level character, when I cast my cantrips, I cast it as a 20th level character, not a first level wizard. So it would have scaled the same way. I believe that is correct. Am I correct on that, sir? Cantrips and any magic that refers to level strictly says level in the text. Most of the time it refers to the spell slot you are using, and that's something we're going to get into in a moment. Okay, so for example, the cantrip Acid Splash, which is a damage-dealing cantrip, it specifically says when you reach 5th level, 11th level, 17th level. In my mind, that refers to overall class level. Now, I understand that there can be a little bit of word-mongering and confusion there. It could mean you as a caster, so your caster level. But I think it means you as a character, so your character level. I'm like 90% sure that that's the way that it, it reads, on because I think I've read some things on Facebook about that. Uh, because that was an issue in older editions, particularly like 3.5, where you could have a multi-class you know, cleric, wizard, druid, and you had to keep up with each different class's level because you had spells that were affected that way. And I'm, again, I'm I'm not 100%, but I'm like 99% sure that they eliminated that and everything is by class, or excuse me, by, by just level. So no matter what you multi-class into or whatever, your level, whatever it is, if there's a level-dependent factor, you take your level and you don't have to worry about keeping up with it separately. So if I am incorrect, if there's anyone out there that knows 100% for sure, please let me know, but I'm pretty darn sure that I'm right. Given the fact that 5th edition is super streamlined and super common sense simple, I agree with you in this case that it is overall character level when it refers to a level-dependent spell ability. Excellent. Okay, so let's move on and talk about rituals. Uh, this is another aspect of magic that I really think 5th edition has gotten correct. I'm really, really happy with it. So how would you explain, again, to our audience, specifically to noobs uh, and to D&D 5th edition, what is, it, what is a ritual spell and how does it differ from all the other spells in your spellbook or our casting procedures? Okay, a ritual spell represents something you have your character do to duplicate the effect of a spell without casting the spell. Basically, in any version of Dungeons & Dragons, specifically 5th edition, when you cast a spell, you use up a spell slot. You use up some of your inherent magical energy that you have available as a resource during the game day. A ritual does not use that resource. Certain spells have a ritual tag, meaning it says 
physically in the spell description, spell name, parenthesis, ritual, close parenthesis. That means if you have the ability to cast ritual spells, you can sit down, take 10 minutes of game time, do some magic-y mumbo-jumbo, and poof, the effects of the spell happen. In my mind, this is this is a character getting certain magical implements, drawing certain runes on the table or the ground or the wall, uh, and doing things to cast magic instead of just instinctually snapping his fingers and using magic. Yes, I uh, I think that is a very good description of how that process works. It's it's a way for your character when time is not a factor to be able to be a wizard without wasting a resource that would then mean that your characters have to take a long or short rest. And I think this is it makes sense within the most narrative worlds that you read about, wizards are constantly able to do this. They they use a book to cast a spell that they themselves may not know. And I know that's a little bit different what we're talking about here, but essentially that means that you can utilize other resources rather than your own internal energy to represent the effects of that spell. So I really, really like that. I think it it adds a lot of, uh, again, fun to the game because you don't have the person who they should cast alarm before they go to sleep at night to protect the camp but they don't want to waste that spell slot in case they get ambushed or they should cast uh, some other, you know, divine guidance or divine protection spell, but they want to save it in case they need cure wounds later. So this allows your characters who are divine or arcane focused to do that, to be that person, to do those cool things that they want to do when they select that class and not then be uh, nerfed later on down the road when they're in a combat situation. And they like, well, I used that spell slot to cast alarm. Now that we are actually being ambushed, it was a waste because we're all in combat now. Like, really, we're talking about one surprise around it. It's not worth it. So I think rituals are a great way to add that back in. Exactly. Just like cantrips let you do more wizardy things, rituals let you do more magic-y things. It's another way that 5th edition lets players more frequently do more things that their character would do. Uh, And also, I want to point out that you can take feats to pick up the ability to be a ritual caster and to get these extra cantrips and things, even if you're not a magic user, which is a way for uh, you to create a character that might be able to do something that a normal version of him wouldn't do. This is going to be a little bit off genre but consider the tv show supernatural sam and dean are not magic users they're just regular guys but if they get a book of magic and get the right bits and pieces and the right dagger and the right ceremonial cup they can cast a magic spell that's a ritual it's it's using magic without having magical energy now, it could go horribly wrong, it could go awry, and that, that's just fun hooks for the game you're playing. But that's what we're talking about here. So if your fighter wants to know, have some sort of background where he can cast certain scrying or divination spells, you can potentially do that. Now, I do have a question here, because again, I don't actually know this answer right now, is if I can cast ritual spells... Am I only able to cast a ritual if it's something that I do have in my wizard spellbook or otherwise in my uh, repertoire of spells? 
Or am I able to cast any spell that's considered a ritual spell as long as I could have cast that spell by level? Uh, well, when it comes to the feat ritual caster, uh, there is no prerequisite of having magical class abilities. You just have to have a high enough intelligence or wisdom score. At that point, you get a spell book that has a certain number of spells in it that are only that and you can only cast them as rituals. Uh, but they have to be a spell that has the ritual tag in the description. So basically what that means is if you do not have any spell casting abilities, you can learn ritual spells and cast them as rituals. You don't get spell slots, you don't get any inherent magical ability, but you can do these ceremonies, these rituals, these practices and generate a magical effect. So that does read to me, though, then if I'm a wizard who can cast spells and cast rituals, I still don't have access to every ritual in the game. I, I could only cast a ritual spell if it's in my spell book. Oh, yes. You still have to know the spell. If you, you have to either add it to your spell book. It has to be a spell that you inherently know if you're an inherent magical caster or a learned magical caster. You can't just walk around willy-nilly and say, oh, I see these words here on the wall. I'm going to try to cast this ritual. But of course, that's where the story comes in. If you are playing a ritual caster and you see a new ritual, are you going to try to cast it? What's going to happen if you don't have it in your repertoire, in your spell book? That's where you can have fun as a GM and as a player. And I want to take a small diverge, uh, divergence here to talk a little bit about components. Because you did kind of bring that up with Sam and Dean, if they have the right dagger, if they have the right this, have the right that. Because uh, this is another question I see quite often come up about components and, you know, how diligently do they need to be tracked? Really, that comes down to the type of game that you want to run. If you want to run a very gritty, realistic type of game, you know, games of Game of Thronesian, where uh, someone might run out of arrows or you could run out of food and water and you could starve to death. That's the type of game where tracking spell components probably makes sense. But it is going to cause extra bookkeeping that not everyone's going to be a fan of. And it's also going to lessen your, your magic user's ability to cast spells because they are probably going to run out at, in time. At times, I should say. So what I generally do is I don't really track them. I just assume that they have what they need. They, you know, when they buy their equipment, they buy the spell component pouch. And I just assume that every time that they are in a town or a village or otherwise able to refill that, they do. And occasionally I might tell them to just subtract a gold piece or two just to equate it just like I would for arrows for a ranger. But having said that, I do try to allow situations where if someone just happens to have like a magical dagger, which I know I don't give them out very often, but if I give a magic item, chances are it's a dagger. So let's say that they have a magical dagger uh, that they don't need or don't want anymore. And they want to cast some sort of ritual spell or they just want to cast a spell and they ask, can I use this dagger as a component to get a greater effect? Absolutely. I'm going to say yes on that. And it doesn't even have to be a magical dagger. It could just be something unique, interesting. They find a, a gem that is carved in a way that kind of looks like a dragon. And it's, you know, it's, it's very old. And there just comes a moment where they really need to do a, a spell. They, they need it to be powerful. And they use a really cool component that's been a part of the game then I might allow that spell to be maximized. I might allow it to do uh, increased range or, or some other effect uh, to compensate them for using this thing that's valuable in the game. 
So that's just the way I kind of do it. Do you have any spe specific rules or, or, any, or thoughts about how you would use um, components like that? I pretty much agree with you. I have always house ruled in my games that part of being a caster is having the right bits and pieces with you at all points in time. And that's kind of one of the things we just hand wave and relegate to the background data of role playing. When you're role playing, you don't role play cooking breakfast. You don't role play going to the bathroom. You don't role play finding six pieces of holly and sticking it in your belt pouch. But if you want to play the game that way and your players are on board, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. So do it. But I don't usually do that. Now, I can immediately predict that some people are going to say that is going to have a negative impact on game balance because the spells that do have material components listing, some of them have a gold piece value. Some of them are going to say uh, has to have a gem worth a thousand gold pieces, uh, has to have five silver pieces worth of crushed glass or, or something. I mean, there, there's a zillion different things you can have in there, and they are all listed in the spell descriptors in the back of the player's handbooks. On one hand, I agree with you. Certain spells that have a gold, a gold piece value, they're going to be very important spells, like a resurrection spell or a high-powered curative spell or restoration spell. Again, it depends on your game, and it depends on how you're playing and the levels you're at. In my original days of playing, when we were in uh, 3.5, we didn't always care about the mundane material components, but if the component said 25 GP or 1,000 GP, that was what our dungeon master cared about. And we actually went so far, whenever we got treasure, we split it an extra way so that there was a group fund to buy these components we might need. And that's certainly one way to handle it. Yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. And, and I would clarify that I agree with that, that if there is a spell that does require like an ex excessive and specific spell component, then I probably would ask for at least deduct that value or, or otherwise compensate for it. But uh, I think Fireball, I th there's a spell where like we're bat guano is fireball. the component. Fireball. I think it's Fireball. It's always been Fireball. Yeah. I'm not going to ask someone to go into town in a village and go, okay, did you buy your bat guano? I need you to reduct two silver pieces so that you got enough bat poop in your belt pouch so that you can cast Fireball. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. But, for example, if someone wants to go on a quest and they, they kill a dire bat and they say, hey, can I grab some of this guano for, a, you know, if I want to cast like a mega Fireball, yeah, I might do a little something extra the next time they cast Fireball because that would be kind of cool and part of the story. But yeah, I don't track the mundane. But yeah, to clarify, yes, if it's something big like that, I would, I would track, I would track that. Though someone was talking recently, and I can't remember if this was in my local game or online or wherever, about the sort of fallacy that if you actually lived in a world where magic was real and you could be resurrected, and you needed a pearl that cost five thousand gold pieces to do that that the economy would drive the value of those pearls because everybody who was wealthy would hoard them and they would have so many of them that it could actually devalue them in a way where a cheaper pearl would be worth 5,000, the quality I mean, 
because of the economics around it. So it really makes no sense whatsoever if you put too much thought into it. So even in that regard, if you want to hand wave the 25,000 gold piece requirement to cast the spell, who cares? Okay, guys, we're playing a pretend world where we hit monsters with swords and cast fireballs. We don't care about the geopolitical socioeconomic classes. We're playing fucking wizards and fighters and clerics. Have fun with the damn game. That's right. Because if you're not having fun, then you're not playing it right. Right, but you know what? If you want to play a geopolitical socioeconomic game and deal with the, the value of pearls and wheat, you're probably not playing Dungeons and Dragons. You're playing... Uh, I don't know, Wall Street, the medieval ages. Yeah, that's going to be in Kickstarter before this podcast is over. Exactly. Now, uh, real quick, just to wrap up rituals, uh, the two main caster classes, uh, cleric and wizard, both of them can cast ritual spells. They don't need the ritual feat to do that. Clerics can cast any spell as a ritual if they have it prepared for the day. And wizards can cast any spell they know as a ritual, if it's a ritual spell, even if they don't have it prepared. It just has to be known. Now, that is, those inherent requirements are based on the inherent spell casting abilities of those two classes. Wizards know a lot of spells. They have a big old phone book of spells they can cast, but they only know a certain number of them. They only prepare a certain number of them on any given day that reflects the resource of their magical energy their extra freedom in casting any ritual spell even if it's not prepared lets them do more wizardy things lets them be more utilitarian they can know a bunch of ritual spells and just never prepare them but always be able to cast them if they have the 10 minutes of game time a cleric has access to all cleric spells at all times but only prepares a certain number. This is the old-school, order-of-the-stick kind of joke where the cleric has to request certain spells at the beginning of the day. You know all of them. You have access to every cleric spell in the world, but you only pull X number every morning. When you pull a ritual spell, you can cast it, and it's gone, because you used up your spell slot, but you can always cast it as a ritual as long as you've chosen it for that morning. So again, it's just different ways to do the same thing. It's still giving casting characters more ability to do more things. Right. And I think we we pretty much crossed over into spell slots there. Um, so let's just go ahead and transition into that, because this episode's already kind of running a little long, and we got a lot to get to. So spell slots is probably the number one thing that I see people get confused about in the game. They don't quite understand how they work. And as I've done the other times, I'll just throw it back to you, my Crunchmaster. How would you explain the spell slot process to someone who's new to the game? Spell slots represent the magical resource that a caster can expend every game day. Dungeons & Dragons works on basically a per-day principle. Every morning, you have a certain number of resources you can expend, and then you have to rest before you get them back. Generally, that rest is sleeping at night. So when a caster wakes up, whether you whether you are an arcane caster like a wizard or a divine caster like a cleric, you get a certain level of magic that you can cast every day. Those are your spell slots. 
Dungeons and Dragons breaks down spell slots into levels. So you have so many first level spell slots, so many second level spell slots, so on up to level 9. Spell slots are not spells. They are not specific to a spell. They are not linked to any spell or any ability. They are just packets of energy, envelopes that you fill with the spell you want to cast. This is very different from older versions of Dungeons & Dragons. It feels similar, but it is vastly different. Right. It used to be that you had a spell list that with the number of spells you knew at every level, and you had a second spell list that was the number of spells you could cast at every level. And that's a, that's a wide generality. But the difference is the spell slots that you get in 5th edition are not spell-specific. They are just your resource to expend. I think that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Like So, for example, in an older version of, of D&D, if I had three first-level spell slots and I wanted to cast Magic Missile, I would choose Magic Missile, and now I have two spell slots left. I could choose any other spell, or I could, I could choose Magic Missile again. This would now allow me to cast Magic Missile twice. I, I still have a third slot, so I could pick another spell, or I could choose Magic Missile a third time. In that case, you are pre-connecting the spell slot to the spell. They are, they are not separatable. Separable? Separable. That's what I'll go with. So that you, you're stuck with it. If you chose poorly, which was one of the things about being a wizard, it was kind of fun. You try to, you know, you'd kind of metagame in a way like, hey, I think we're going to fight these things. I need to make sure I have these spells prepared and hopefully you were right. But it could also be very detrimental if you chose all these combat spells and then you got put into a geopolitical socioeconomic situation and your fireball really isn't going to be beneficial in this situation. So the new version has separated that out. So what happens is you have a set number of spells that you can cast and that number is represented by how many spell slots you have available. Then you have a list of spells to choose from those are not connected until the moment of casting you choose to put them together. Exactly. So let's look at a cleric. I play a lot of clerics, so I'm just going to use that as an example. Plus, alphabetically, it's before wizard, so na 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 on you wizards. A cleric has the spell slots per level. If you look at uh, page 57 of the player's handbook, they're right there. You start with two spell slots, uh, two first-level spell slots at first level. At second level, you have three first-level spell slots. At third so level, quick, go ahead. A quick jump in, because I've seen this as well. It, it is probably a poor design choice that your spell levels are not equal to your character levels. That's just deal with it. At first level, you have first-level spell slots. At 20th level, you have ninth-level spell slots. It is one of the idiosyncrasies of the game. I would have been happy with it to change. I know why they didn't, or I feel like I do. It is a little confusing, but go with it. Yeah, one of the things of Dungeons & Dragons, that it's always been this way, at least as long as the game has existed in its modern D20 version, spells run from really technically 0 to 9. The most powerful spells are ninth level spells, and you typically don't get those until you're high teens or level 20. Yeah, the numbers don't match up. 
It's just what we have to deal with. There is no good explanation for that. You just have to accept it and move on. Yeah, just deal with it. I'm sorry. Now, there are epic level spells and spells that technically exist at levels 10, 11, 12, and blah, 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 blah. We're not talking about those right now. And plus, in 5th edition, those really don't exist either. So you've got your spell slots per level. Clerics have a certain number of spells prepared every day. Clerics instinctually, inherently, know all of the cleric spells. They just choose a certain number per day that they have access to for that day. If we look at the book uh, on the next page over, it says you prepare a number of spells equal to your wisdom modifier plus your cleric level. So at first level, you prepare one spell plus your wisdom modifier, which will probably be a two or a three. So you know four spells, let's say. You've got two spell slots. Throughout the course of the game day, you can cast two spells. Each time you cast a spell, you go back and choose one of those four spells you know and cast it. Like Michael said before, the spells don't fit into the slots at the beginning of the day. You plug the spell into the slot when you choose to cast the spell. When I said earlier that the the spell slots are your resource, they're your empty packets of magical energy, you don't fill them until you choose to cast the spell. This this is really, really different from old D&D, and it is something I like about it. It gives you freedom of choice. There is still a degree of being smart and thinking ahead and preparing because you can only prepare a certain number of spells and you have to make that choice. But in the moment, I'm essentially casting on the fly. I don't have to say, I have prepared two Cure Light Wound spells and one Guidance spell, and those are the only things I can do. I can prepare Cure and Guidance and something else and something else and in the moment say, oh, I need a cure spell, cast it. Oh, I need a something else spell, cast it. It's a lot more free. Yes, and very again, I just want to reiterate the point that if you picked four spells, for example, and one of them was cure wounds, and you have two slots, and you cast cure wounds, cure wounds does not leave your list for the day. In olden games, it would. It would be like, well, I can no longer cast that, because I have used it once. It stays on your list until you change your list, and you change your list at the beginning of a, at the end of a long rest. So the, after you've taken a long rest, you get up the next morning, you re, reconnect with your divine patron or otherwise whatever, you know, symbology your character uses or your GM uh, requires, and you recreate your list for the day. That list never changes. So you have a menu of options, and you have so much money in your wallet and you can buy whatever's on the menu until you run out of money. Exactly. And wizards work the exact same way. The only difference is, instead of knowing all the spells and just picking them as you pray to your deity, you flip through your spell book and pick a certain number of spells you know out of it. Uh, it's the same principle, uh, your class level plus, in this case, your intelligence modifier, because wizards cast off of intelligence. So... As a first-level character, you have one because you're a first-level character. Let's say your intelligence is a plus three. You have four spells that you can prepare that day. You have two spell slots at first level. That's your money to spend. 
how you spend that money, you're picking from those four menu options. However you pick is your choice. It's really that simple. It's not complicated. It, it can be if you if you don't have a, a frame of reference. It's it's close enough to the old versions that it makes sense, but it, it's so many, so many ways better. Okay, so a couple other points to bring up here. Uh, we just talked about wizards, so let's clarify something with wizards. Wizards have a spellbook. Uh, every level, you get to add spells to your spellbook. But one of the cool thing about wizards is that you can add spells anytime you want, as long as you can find them and pay to write them into your book. This is the very typical, very tropey wizard who's off in the library copying spells over, uh, and you end up walking around with a giant phone book size spell book of every spell ever. Uh, this is where there is a, a gold value of copying spells over because you have to use certain ink that has certain magical principles and there's a cost per page of the spell. In 5th edition, you choose a school of magic and you get a discount when you're copying spells of that school into your spell book. So wizards don't inherently start with a lot of spells, but they have the ability to find a lot of spells. Now you are still governed by your class level plus intelligence modifier spells prepared per day, but your book can be as thick as you want it to be. You can have every spell in there and you just pick out of it. So that's how that works for a wizard. Going backwards to a cleric, one of the things that we've seen some questions about are domain spells. In 5th edition, clerics have a domain. It's something that represents a specific aspect or a certain part of their relationship with their deity. Domains give bonus spells. These bonus spells are free to prepare, but when you cast them, they come out of your regular spell slots per level. So what that means is, as a cleric, every day you prepare class level plus wisdom modifier spells. On top of that, you get to prepare those bonus domain spells. For example, if we flip to clerics in the book, uh, we will see, uh, let's just pick a random domain here. Uh, so if we pick the light domain, at first level, your bonus spells, your domain spells, are burning hands and fairy fire. So that means every day when you prepare your spell, uh, at first level you pick four spells to prepare, if you have a plus three wisdom. On top of those four spells, you have already automatically, every day, prepared for free Burning Hands and Fairy Fire. When you have your two spell slots, you now essentially have six spells to choose from. The four you picked, plus those two domain spells. Right, so the domain spells don't give you additional casting, they give you additional options. Exactly. And also I want to note that you can sometimes, and actually often, your domain spells may not be spells that you normally could cast based off of your class. So people have gotten confused on that where they say, well, it says my domain spell is X, but that's not, that's a wizard spell. It's not a cleric spell. That's fine. That's part of that domain that you follow a god or a pantheon of gods that that is something they exemplify or encourage or whatever. And that that's kind of a cool thing. That's like, that's what makes that domain unique. 
is that, yeah, you're a cleric of this and that, but you can actually cast Fireball now or, you know, whatever. And I think the last thing we want to touch on here for Magic 101 with spell slots is the fact that certain spells you can cast with a higher spell slot to do more things. So like we talked about an hour or so ago, uh, cantrips scale as you level up. So when you're a higher level, uh, the cantrip might do more damage. That's just automatically, it just does it because it does it. With certain spells, there's a little descriptor in the player's handbook that says at higher levels. That means if you choose to cast a spell with a higher spell slot, it does something extra. So here's the easiest example I can think of. Cure Wounds. Cure Wounds is a first level spell. If you cast it as a first level spell, it does 1d8 healing plus your relevant spell casting modifier, which is probably going to be Wisdom because it's typically a divine spell. The paragraph that says at higher levels, it says when you cast this spell using a slot of second level or higher, the healing increases by 1d8 per level above 1. So what that means is uh, as a cleric, as you level up, you start getting those empty spell envelopes of second level, third level, fourth level, all the way up to ninth level. So when you are choosing to cast a spell, you choose that packet of energy, that first level packet, that ninth level packet, that anywhere in between packet. You cram that cure light, that cure wounds spell into it. At first level, there's only enough room for cure wounds. At ninth level, there's so much more room, it uses up more magic, it does better. So typically with healing spells and damage dealing spells, we see the ability to choose to do a better job with the spell, depending on how you choose to cast it. And this is, again, a really cool way to um, decide to use that resource you have as a caster. It's very, very different from older abilities, and I think it's a lot better. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things, like in older editions, like Magic Missile is a very common example, it would automatically scale based off of your level. So if you were first level and you cast Magic Missile, you got one missile. At like fifth level, if you cast Magic Missile, you may get three. And I, I don't, may not have those specifically correct, but that's how it worked. But it didn't cost you anything more than a first level spell. So your first level spells got more powerful as you leveled to sort of represent your growing power, which they kept for cantrips, but they did not keep for the other spells. And now they just give you the ability that most spells, you can cast them as higher level for a greater effect so that you've got, again, more versatility. But your power level is actually a little lower because it doesn't automatically scale. Because if you think about how powerful a first level magic missile would be if you were casting it at 20th level in, say, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons versus now, it's only going to do the same thing that a first level magic missile spell would do unless you choose to cast it higher, which takes a slot that you don't have available. And that actually sort of flattens out that crazy curve that wizards used to have. So this is the way that I would I would wrap it up, and I will share this example. Go watch the new Dread movie, the one with Keith Urban, and think of his gun as a wizard. It has a limited number of ammunition, but 
he can make it do different things. He can say armor piercing. He can say grenade. He can say regular. And it will just keep shooting until it runs out of ammo. And I like to think that if he chooses the grenade option, that maybe it takes five, five units of bullets rather than just the one. And maybe the armor piercing takes two units of bullets instead of one. But that's essentially what you're doing when you're casting. You have, a, you have X number of units available each day, and you have a lot of flexibility in how you spend those uh, within the confines of you know, which spells you have prepared, which are in your book, which are rituals, which are cantrips, which are not. Uh, hopefully we have made spellcasting a little bit easier to understand and digest. Of course, if we got some things wrong, which if we do, blame Caleb. Please let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or again, I'd love to see more and more people using the forum because we can get a little quicker turnaround and get people interacting together. But let us know what we missed or what we got wrong, and we will touch back up on it on a, uh, a future episode. Uh, I want to thank my crunch master for uh, lending us his expertise here tonight. He was sort of the rules guru and flipping through the book, which I cut all that out so you won't hear it anyways. Uh, but thank you very much for that. But before we go, we still got to read our review. Any last words from you, Caleb, before we go to the review? No, uh, I think your review, uh, your, your recap uh, using the dread example makes a lot of sense. And plus, I really like that movie. So I approve. So the, 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 the downside here is that we're running long on time. We really wanted to do another background segment. We, uh, we got a lot of really good feedback on our first one. And uh, that's something we want to try to do every episode. We just unfortunately don't have time. But what I have chosen for mine is a barbarian charlatan. So just be thinking about that. What would you do with it? Uh, mine involves Eddie Murphy. And I'll leave it at that. All right. So, Caleb, we will transition into our review segment. So what happened is we had a review for about a year that we didn't know that we had. Okay, so we love reading the reviews you guys give us. Uh, as we've talked about before, leaving us a review and a rating helps other people find us. So we always uh, appreciate you guys taking a few minutes out of your day to do that. We do our best to always catch the reviews you actually leave us and read them on the air just to give you guys uh, a little personal voice and our personal gratitude. As you know, though, we do have international listeners. It's a big, wide world out there. And uh, one of the cool things about iTunes is that when people in other countries listen to us, they can leave us reviews as well. But unfortunately, we don't always catch those. We have to play around with the settings in iTunes and actually go to the iTunes of each separate country to find those ratings. Now, I know when Michael gets uh, a little craziness in him, he will sit there and click on every country in the world. Uh, we apparently haven't done that for a while because just recently we found a review from the wonderful country of Brazil. And unfortunately, this was from almost... Goal! <sighs> I was hoping I would talk over you, but thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this review was from almost a year ago. So we are really, really sorry that we missed it for so long. Um, this was from July of last year. It was from a reviewer called Seconds to Live. Uh, it was titled Simply Great. And it says here, I have been playing RPG for the past 20 years. And for a few times in my gaming life, I have had as much fun as I have while listening to this podcast. It sure makes traffic seem almost 
pleasurable. So, uh, reviewer seconds to live. Thank you so much for the review. I certainly hope you lived long enough to hear us read your review today. And we will certainly do our best to all of our international listeners to stay on top of this. Um, Michael was telling me about a new uh, software program he subscribed to that will try to culminate. Um, that's not even the right word. That will try to pull all those together for us so we can get a better idea of them. We really, really, really do appreciate your iTunes and Stitcher reviews. Um, of course, please continue to shout out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, our own forums, anywhere we interact with you, we will eventually get around to talking back at you. Yes, my apologies as well. I must have missed that uh, country, or I just haven't, I, I haven't done that in a while, because to be perfectly honest, I went through probably four or five dozen different countries, and almost none of them had anything, so it didn't really seem like it was a worthwhile venture. And uh, my OCD it just hasn't kicked in enough to make me want to do that again. I do spot check some of the regular ones, uh, Canada, UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia, some, some places where we've had interaction with people specifically, but I do not check them all anymore. But hopefully the service, if it does what it says it does, it won't be an issue and it will not be an issue going forward. So thank you very much. Uh, again, apologies that we did not get back to that background section. I'm quite disappointed myself. But again, I promise you, that Eddie Murphy has something to do with my barbarian Charlton, as does the new Netflix show Daredevil. I'll leave you with that. This has been Michael. And this has been Caleb. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys.